Hello and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. Thanks again to all our listeners. We always appreciate the support. We have a super cool guest today. He is best known for being a founding member of Huey Lewis and the News. As the band's drummer, he was behind the kit for all their biggest songs like Power of Love, Heart and Soul, and Jacob's Ladder. I'm so happy to welcome Bill Gibson to Guess That Record. How are you doing, Bill? I'm well, Jackson. Thank you very much for having me Uh, on. For sure, for sure. Yeah, so where are we talking to you from today? Uh, I'm in California, Northern California. I live north of San Francisco, and I'm in my studio and just just got done practicing. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've um yeah, I've been to California a bunch, but like just Southern California, like LA, San Diego. I think probably the most north place I've been to in the state would be the uh, San Fernando Valley. So, <laughs> I uh I would like to go to San Francisco one day. It's on my list for sure. It's beautiful up here. Yeah. Um, Now, it's really great to have you on the show. Uh, I'm a Huey Lewis fan. And, you know, I really think you guys are one of the quintessential 80s bands. You know, it's it's just such an impressive catalog of songs that you guys put out there. So I'm really excited to be speaking with someone who was a part of it all. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Now, for anyone who listens to this show regularly, I always start off by asking what was the first song or the first album you remember hearing that made you take music seriously? And I'm curious to hear your answer, because uh, from what I understand, your dad had a pretty big impact on getting you into music. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, he was uh, he was an architect by trade, but he was a frustrated jazz drummer. <laughs> so he gave me a pair of sticks when I think I was uh, like seven or eight, maybe. And uh and he said, here's how you swing. He taught me how to swing, play a jazz swing beat. And um, I just took off from there. I fell in love with it. Uh, I actually, I wanted to be a saxophone player <clears throat> originally. I saw, uh, you know, on TV when I was a kid, Lawrence Welk was a big show on on the afternoon, on Sunday afternoons. And um, I saw the horn section and I, I thought, that that is smooth. I'd love to do that. So. Uh, I actually started playing clarinet, which has the same mouthpiece in um, my elementary school band that I played that for three years. And but it, it just turned out my dad started taking me to to see guys like uh, Buddy Rich and the Count Basie Orchestra and Duke Ellington, and he'd take me to all these jazz festivals and stuff. And and he really kind of got got me to fall in love with the drums. Mm-hmm. And when did uh, rock and roll come in for you? Probably when um, in the late 50s, when I was seven, eight, uh, you know, stuff like um, Barry Mann, who was uh, wrote a song called Who Put the Bomp, which was kind of an early rock tune. Uh, Chuck Berry, of course. Um, I wasn't that big into Elvis, but I liked a lot of some of the not a lot of it, but some of the things he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't really consider that rock and roll. I don't know why, but um, Chuck Berry certainly, yeah. And and then then I really 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 got into it when in uh, when the Beach Boys hit in like sixty one sixty two. Yeah, 
course. And um, now, uh, one of the things that I make, or one of the things that I think makes you stand out a bit more, besides being a great drummer, is the fact that you can also sing as well, which definitely came in handy uh, with Huey, where there was a lot of complex backing vocals. So how did you start singing? My mom was uh, the director of the church choir, and I uh, was in the junior choir. And I we just sang music was in my house constantly. My mom uh, loved Broadway shows. She had all the all the records, uh, Oklahoma, King and I, South Pacific. So we'd listen to all that stuff in the daytime when my dad was at work. And <laughs> when my dad come home, he'd put on the jazz, the right. big band jazz, you know. So, but I we my mom sang constantly. So um, I, I always I always just. Thought I thought everybody could sing. So that's what my my daughter says that as well. She's a singer, and she says I always thought everybody could sing. I didn't realize that some people can't. Yeah, no that that is a a good point for sure. Um, and uh, so from what I've read, you started playing in bands in high school. And is it true that you went to the same school as Huey? Yeah, Huey and I were in the same junior high school together. That's it. Yeah. Kind of crazy to think that uh, uh, sort of knew each other before then. Well, I didn't know him then. He he was a year ahead of me. My sister actually knew him. My sister was a year ahead of me, and she was in the same grade as Huey. So they they knew of each other. They didn't really weren't close friends or anything like that. But and I knew of him. But um, then he took off and went to Lawrenceville Academy on the in New Jersey for high school, and I went to the local high school in Mill Valley, Tam High. And um, and everybody, I mean, at, at that point, everybody knew everybody. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, knew, I, I got to know all of Huey's friends. Then he came back and then we got to know each other when, when our band started doing gigs together. Yeah. And uh, the the formation of the news is uh, is kind of interesting because from what I've gathered, it was sort of like two competing bands coming together to form a new one. So how did you guys all decide to to get together and start your own thing? Uh, Huey and Sean, our keyboard player, were in a band called Clover. Mm-hmm. Honey and Mario Cipollina, our original bass player, were were in a band called Soundhole. And uh, we played all the same clubs in the county here and around the Bay Area. Uh, and we, we were friends before. We, I mean, we were all friends before we were, you know, uh, contemporary competing groups, you know. So... Um, Clover went off to uh, England in 1977, and the year before, the year before that, Soundhole had broken up. I got, I, I was playing with uh, bass, bassist Jack Cassidy, who was with the Jefferson Airplane and Hot mm-hmm. Tuna. I was playing with him in a punk band with Brian Marnell, our guitar player, and um, that was 77. Uh, Clover went to England, recorded a couple of. Uh, albums over there came back after two years and disbanded immediately and uh we'd been talking about doing a uh like a variety show put together a band to do a variety show at our local club uh, and that was the monday night live band that that project was johnny and huey and myself and uh sean we had another drug kevin wells clover's drummer was the second drummer and um uh, so we just did a variety show, which turned in, which developed into us writing music together, which developed into 
us forming the news. Right. Yeah. And um, you guys got a record deal pretty fast after that. Is that right? I don't know if it was fast. (laughs) It seemed like a million years. But uh, uh, Monday Night Live Band started in 77, I believe, or 78, right around in there. And we didn't get our record deal till 80. So, uh, or 19, maybe late 79, we did a showcase. and Every major label in the United States passed on us. But this little company, Chrysalis Records, uh, 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 an English company based in London, Chris Ellis and Terry Wright, they took a liking to us and signed us to the deal. And yeah. Thank God they did. Yeah. I, I am, because I'm a musician myself and, and we're in the process of trying to get signed. And it, so I always... It, it does sort of seem uh, interesting to to learn about how other artists get signed. And especially back then where it was just sort of more like pass well, the tapes around. And if someone yeah, likes it, then you got a deal. <laughs> yeah. You have to remember it was a, a, a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Back then. No internet, no cell phones, no, none of that stuff. And it was all about AM radio. And so that that's just not the way it is nowadays. It's yeah. <laughs> Completely. So I, I wish you luck in getting a deal. I mean, I, it's hard to do. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's taken us a while, but uh, we're, we're working away at it. Good deal. Um, and uh, so then, yeah, you guys went on to make your first album, which didn't have a huge commercial impact. And it, it is an interesting album because it just feels so different compared to uh, what would follow, but uh, I'll pull it up here. The record that, kind of got you guys going was picture this. And I feel like this is the one where the kind of like trademark Huey Lewis and the news sound came in, you know, the, the production is sleek. And uh, most importantly, you know, those extremely tight backing vocals uh, began to appear. So how did you guys go about recording the vocals in those days? Uh well, it depends on the tune, of course, but um, we were, it was usually a three, three part vocal with um, myself, Chris and Johnny for the three, three parts. Johnny did, well, what, what got our foot in the door was, do you believe in love? The song mm-hmm. that Mutt Lang wrote for us. And, uh, and on that song, Johnny did all the vocals. He, he did the three part and double tracked it. So it sounded massive. Was six tracks of Johnny, you know, and it was beautiful, and and that really, I think, put that song over the top. Was his BVs? Yeah. So, so um, yeah, but that's that was all Johnny. Then we just went into doing stuff. Chris, Johnny, and myself. It was a comb- sometimes combination. Sometimes it was Sean, Chris, and Johnny. Sometimes it was, uh. uh you know, it was just different combinations of three, three parts generally. Yeah. Do you have, uh, are you, are you like the high parts, the low parts? Where do you, I'm the low it? part in all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. Johnny's <laughs> the high part, Chris, the middle part, and I'm the low part. That's where I would be too. <laughs> but, um, uh, with picture this, uh, before I get too ahead of myself, um, uh, that was the first album where you guys, uh, produced it. Do you think that producing the records yourself kind of gave uh, you guys a more distinct sound? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, it was what we wanted it to sound like. So that that really brought out our character, as, you know, uh, as far as the productions were concerned. It, 
yeah, we we had full control over what we what we sounded like, and uh, so that was key, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it it goes to show, you know, the trust that Chrysalis Records had in you guys, because of course the first album didn't do so well. And I feel like you know, kind of going back to comparing the old days to today, uh, you know, I don't know if an artist going into their second record after the first one wasn't a hit. I don't know if they'd be able to go to the label and say, we want to produce it. <laughs> so no, they had trust in you. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They definitely trusted us. Yeah. Um, so now I can pull it up. Um, uh, the next record that came out was of course this one sports. And uh, of course I like, there's you right there. Um, and uh, I found this great write up to share with you about sports. Um, so the period of 1983 to 1984 was a banner period for rock blockbusters with uh, albums from ZZ Top, Def Leppard, The Police, Van Halen and Bruce Springsteen, amongst others. But Huey Lewis and the News outsold all of them uh, with sports in 1983, except for Michael Jackson's Thriller. And sports was still selling 16 months after release, making it the number 14 seller the following year. Uh, in 1984. Now, it's pretty crazy because sports is estimated to have sold about 10 million copies worldwide. And it makes sense to have done that well, considering how it's just hit after hit after hit on that record. So how does it feel to have been a part of, you know, such a defining album like that? You know, we had a lot of blind faith as as musicians growing up, and we always felt that we would be successful. You know, uh, and so that's why there was no quit in us. You know, we just wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't quit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, obviously amazing. You know, what an incredible career we've had. But, and that album certainly put us over the top. But, but um, yeah, and, uh, just amazing. I mean, it's about the only word I can use to describe it. Yeah, of course. We had and, no idea it was going to do that. Yeah. And so the album starts off with the heart of rock and roll. And I was wondering, were you guys inspired by Pink Floyd to start that track with a heartbeat? No. Because <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of like um, uh, the beginning of Dark Side of the Moon also starts with a heartbeat. Okay. No. Which is what reminded me of that. But yeah. We never thought of it. Okay. We just thought, hey, it's the heart of rock and roll and let's use a heartbeat. Yeah. And was that with a, a bass drum that you did that? Sound? No, no, that was with a Lindrum. Mm. I uh, we had just gotten a hold of the new Lindrum at the time, and um, I remember sitting there on the in the studio on boom, 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 boom on one of the little pads, you know, right? Boom, boom. Cool. And we mixed it in with something else. We mixed another sound in with it. I think can't remember what it was, but uh, no, that's just me playing a drum machine. Nice. Yeah. Um. And another song uh, from the album that I really wanted to bring up was Heart and Soul, uh, which is my favorite. And I, I would say it's my favorite song from you guys, like uh, especially because I'm a I'm a guitar player and the tone on Heart and Soul is just like, uh, you know, it sounds great. Um, but uh, what do you remember about putting that song together? That's a Mike Chapman, Nikki Chin song um, who they had released it as uh, in their band Exile, and then the Bus Boys did a had a uh, version of it that was actually on the radio, 
And I can't remember who pitched it to him. Mike Chapman, I think, pitched it to Huey or our manager, Bob, and um, and said, you guys, this is great. You guys would be perfect for this song. So we worked it up and it it just worked out great. And and, and, uh, and the recording went down smooth as silk. Uh, you know, we kind of we kind of um, pinched some of um, Exiles uh, production ideas, like the percussion and stuff. That was all on Exile stuff. And um, you know, we, it was like a hybrid between theirs and our, and, and our version, I think. So, um, yeah, it, it went down real easy. Bob Clearmountain mixed that song when he, he got those guitars. When we sent it to him, the guitars did not sound like that, I guarantee mm. it. And he did something to it. And wow, when it came back, I just said, oh, my God, that's fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Um, And then uh, the track that I would consider to be like the vocal standout on sports is uh, If This Is It with all those uh, soaring backing vocals, of course. And it the the song, I think, has kind of like a Beach Boys feel to it. Is that what you guys were going for with that song? Yeah, Johnny wrote that song. Uh, with he wanted he wanted to be a summertime feel. He wanted to be like um, the beats, very similar to to Sly Stone's "Hot Fun in the Summertime," mm. right? It's a twelve eight sh- shuffle, you know, and um, so he wanted it to sound summerish, which it does with that with that beat. And um, well, yeah, we pulled it off. He he originally wrote it as uh, it was called "Who Rocked, Who Rolled." Mm-hmm. And uh, and that and that the lyric wasn't going to fly, so Huey rewrote the l- lyrics, and we changed the background to the background used to go who rock, who rolled, right? But it's now who, who you know who up, who oh, yeah. So we just changed the backgrounds. And um, I, I think the music video also definitely helps with that kind of beachy feel that oh, yeah. the song has. Uh, how tough was it to film that shot of you guys buried in the sand? Very tough. <laughs> it was about 90 degrees in the, on the Santa Cruz beach that day. And it, we were sweating our brains out and they had, they, the staff had to, their, the crew, the filming crew it had to keep coming over and wiping the sweat off of us. <laughs> remember and it, it, that was, that was difficult. We were roasting. Yeah. I bet that, uh, but it, it was a cool shot. So it was all worth yeah. it in the end. <laughs> That's right. And, and um, now talking about uh, sports as a whole, uh, and, and I think this is a great question for you. Uh, I love the drum sound on sports, like especially from the snare. Like it, it's just really pleasing to the ear, in my opinion. How did you get the, the drum sound on that album? Bob Clearmountain. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I believe I was using a, a Tama snare drum, oh, might have been like a, it was some, like a Coca-Bola wood snare or something like that. But it was a real thick shell and we had it tuned down a little bit. So it was really full and, you know, snarey. And, but Bob, Bob is responsible for the tone, you know. No. His yeah. myth was just stellar. Mm-hmm. And um, then after sports, the next, thing the band did which is probably the biggest thing you guys were a part of was of course the back to the future soundtrack which produced power of love and back in time uh now back to the future is just such a big movie and to this day i think it's still quite prominent in pop culture uh and the song on its own away from the movie was a a huge hit it was the first 
song for you guys to hit number one on the charts. With all that in mind, would you say it's the band's defining song? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was certainly the biggest one uh, worldwide. And um, obviously a huge moment in time for us, you know. We we were um, nominated for an Academy Award. Should have won it. Uh, should have won the song of the year at the Grammys that year too, but it it was the powers that be decided that Lionel Richie was was his year, and um, but yeah, that was that was pretty much I think it's fair to say that that was our defining song. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now around that same time, actually, uh, another really cool thing that you guys got to be a part of was uh, "We Are the World." Mm. Um, and a couple episodes back, uh, I got to interview David Page from Toto, and uh, he played some keyboard parts on this song, but like as they were putting the finishing touches on it. So you're the first person that I've had the chance to speak with who is like actually at the main recording. Of course, you can you can see you in the picture right there. Um, you know, just an insane thing to be able to say that you were there for because you look around in that room and there's Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel and Michael Jackson and so on and so on. Was it intimidating to be in that room with all those big names? A little bit. Uh, but once once the evening progressed, it was like, oh, we're just all peers, you know, we're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, but that said, yeah, you look over here and there's Ray Charles, you know, standing there and you look over there and there's Stevie Wonder. And then, oh, there's... Um, um, like say there's bruce springsteen there, oh bob dylan there, oh, there's diana ross yeah crazy mm -hmm. right? crazy yeah. uh, <laughs> for, for marin county kids like us you know? yeah of all the people you met that that night who was uh like the coolest interaction you had with you'd say probably the jacksons they mm. were standing they were right in front of us the jacksons and the pointer sisters were close by too and i'd met dan Aykroyd before i knew dan from uh the 70s from new york I'd been to his bar and uh so we 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 spoke a little bit and uh but the the Jacksons and the Pointers and Merle Haggard mm. Merle Haggard was another one <laughs> he was he was great he was there briefly while we were while we were singing the uh harmonies the choir part and um and he was he he was looking uncomfortable, and he and he and he leans over to one Sean or Johnny or somebody. He says, "Is anybody know where I can get a beer here?" You know, and, he's, <laughs> and, he's, and so there was no alcohol in the studio room, right? So mm -hmm. he did a couple of takes of this stuff, and then we noticed, hey, Merle's gone. Merle just bailed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I understand uh, the reason that you all got to be there, and like not just Huey was because. Quincy Jones liked the fact you all could sing, which is a heck of an endorsement. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. We were the only full band at that thing. You know, the E Street band wasn't there. You know, Prince's band wasn't there. Prince Prince did not. Prince bailed on the night. Yeah. He actually gave us our award at the American. Uh, that night started um, with the American Music Awards. Mm -hmm. And we won a few. And Prince gave us our award for something or other and and uh he did not show up he was supposed to show up that uh, huey actually took prince's line in the um in the you know one when they when they when they went one at a time yeah but, i um, I, I read a, a story that yeah because prince was supposed to be 
Huey's part. And uh, but Lionel Richie was telling Prince on the Prince on the phone. Yeah, he was like, we'll put you next to, to Michael Jackson. And that was sort of he was like, no, you're not <laughs> or whatever. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, uh, anyways, for you guys, uh, you continued the upward momentum with uh, four. Uh, and it featured two number one hits, uh, which both lead off the album, Jacob's Ladder and Stuck With You. And I think with a song like Stuck With You, uh, you know, it really highlights how Four was a, a very strong vocal album for the group, as as many of the songs have, uh, the, you know, the very rich, uh, big backing vocals. Was that kind of the goal with a lot of these songs? At that point, Johnny was really coming into his own as an arranger, as a vocal arranger. And um, that um, it was just a natural progression for us, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, we yeah, I, I just think it was very, very natural. Yeah. I wanted to bring up the song uh, Doing It All For My Baby. Uh, and the reason I wanted to bring it up was because it's got a very complex music video that pays homage to sort of like horror movies and Scooby-Doo. Um, but uh, was that, was that the biggest video you guys made from a production standpoint? Mm, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That was done on a soundstage in Hollywood. And, and uh, yeah, I'd say so. Mm -hmm. As it was, you know, because everybody was in prosthetics and makeup and all this outrageous makeup. So yeah, that, I'd say that was the most ambitious one. And uh, I I also wanted to bring this up from that video because there's a uh, kind of a call back to the if this is it video. There's a shot where it's just you guys, it's just your heads singing, but you're in your heads are in jars. How did you uh, how did you guys pull off that shot? That was that was by design. Mm -hmm. We wanted to do something that was a was a callback to if this is it. And um, I think there's another video we did another we did a the same thing in another video too. Well, you know, that's just they, we just got up underneath the table and they put glass things over our heads. And right. <laughs> the movie magic, as they would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the next album you guys did was a Small World, which was a bit of a stylistic change for the band compared to the previous albums. But from a drumming perspective, it has a lot of complex rhythms. So did that make it a fun album for you to record? really fun now that was that was one of my favorite records yeah to record for sure mm -hmm. lots yeah. of drums yeah definitely uh and the big hit from the album was perfect world which is one of those songs that did very well on the charts but somehow i feel it isn't as remembered as some of the other hits from previous albums which is too bad because i think it's a great song how was that track put together uh, uh, our pal Alex Call wrote that song. He, Alex was the singer guitar player in Clover, mm -hmm. uh, Huey's band. And um, he was playing it. He had his own band at playing clubs around Marin. And he was playing that. And we we really liked it. And I think he said, you guys should do it. And so we did. And, and it, it's, 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 it was different for us. And we liked it because it was different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we made it our own, I think. Definitely. Yeah, it it does. Uh, yeah, especially I think with, you know, going back to the complex rhythms, that's probably where it's different. But at the same time, I feel like once you get to the chorus, then it's like, you know, this is Huey Lewis, you yeah. know. Um, 
And uh, talking about how Small World was a stylistic change, the next album you guys made was Hard at Play, which was sort of a return to the usual stuff for you guys. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the song Hit Me Like a Hammer, which I had only heard for the first time recently. And I was surprised how I missed it because I think it's a great song. Uh, and it was co-written by Mutt Lang, who, of course, did. Uh, he wrote Do You Believe in Love? But I think with Hit Me Like a Hammer, it has a much more sort of stereotypical muttling sound to it. Like I could totally picture Brian Adams doing that song. Was it noticeable when recording that track to like, did you think like, yeah, this really feels like a mutt song? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That, that, that song, unfortunately it never gained much traction within the group as far as playing it live. I don't think, we might have played it live two or three times in our career. Wow. And, uh, it was just not a song that it just laid there, you know, live. It was not a good live song. Maybe a good good studio song, but it was never going to work live. So that we just never, we never played it. That's interesting. Yeah. But now that I think about it, I, I can sort of see what you're saying because it, it is, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a slower sort of yeah. groove to it. So, yeah, maybe not as good in the live setting but uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, we used to call it a locks it was a locks <laughs> right <laughs> a locks uh, on stage <laughs> um now uh, i'd like to fast forward to the present day because i wanted to mention that i have actually seen you perform before uh i saw you on the last tour that you did with huey in 2017 at the gray eagle casino here in my hometown of calgary uh, which was a great show and um oh wow that one way out in the middle of nowhere yeah 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 i remember that <laughs> yeah um but it's uh it's crazy for me to look back on it because you know that would have been one of the last shows you guys played as a couple of months later huey went public with his hearing problems yeah. and i couldn't believe it when i found out about that uh news uh because at the show I went to, you would have no idea that Huey was dealing with that because, you know, he was singing in key and there was there was nothing to suggest he wasn't 100 percent. But did you guys know, uh, like guys in the band know about those issues he was having on that last tour? Well, Huey had lost his hearing in one ear 25 years previous. Mm. It, that we knew about that and we knew about the vertigo. His hear, his full hearing loss when his other ear went, that happened literally overnight. Mm. And uh, we, we had no, he had no idea it was coming. We had no idea it was coming. That was a shock. So when we went to that one gig and we had a corporate show in Dallas. And um, when he started singing, he's he was looking around with a very odd look on his face. And he was not close to the key that the song was in and I was looking at our bass player going, "Uh Oh, what's going on. Can he, he can't hear himself, you know? And um, so that's what was happening His his other ear had gone literally overnight. Mm. So that was a very rough gig. The next week we had another corporate show in new Orleans. So we flew to new Orleans uh, and we're at sound check for that show. And he came to the sound check and he said, and we started playing and he says, I can't hear a thing. It just sounds like a jet engine to me. I can't hear pitch. I can't hear anything. I can't do the." So we had to cancel that show right there. Hmm. Back to the hotel, packing up and going back to the airport and flying home. And that was, that was the end. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's um, 
yeah, it, it's it's really too bad how that all happened. But uh, right before right before things you know had to be put on hold, you guys were in the studio making a new album, which was finally released in 2020 as uh, Weather, and uh, uh, it was the first record that you guys made with new material in nearly 20 years. So how fun was it to be working on new songs again? It was fun, you know. It, it, Later, later in our career, we weren't as prolific writing-wise as obviously as we were in the '80s and '90s. But um, it was it was fun. It was it was. Um, we thought I thought it was a really good record. Unfortunately, there's only seven songs on it because we we you know Huey we couldn't sing anymore, so mm -hmm. we couldn't we couldn't continue with writing new stuff for it. So. Um, um, yeah, it was fun. We did it most of it at our, at our little studio in San Rafael, here in Marin. And, right. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, how many tracks? So of course, seven uh, got finished, but how many were were left to do before you had to to put it on hold? Zero. Oh, <laughs> we finished the seven we had, and that was it. Well, that I mean, at least there wasn't any that like you had started and then couldn't finish. So that's good, at <laughs> least. Yeah. Um. Now, it's got to be tough, you know, with Huey's hearing problems, because it's been six years now since uh, since it became public. And, uh, you know, the more years that go by, it's probably tougher for him to kind of regain the ability to sing again. Uh, dare I say, if this is it, uh, are you guys happy with how everything has played out and, and just content with the band's legacy? Well, we got lots of things in lots of irons in the fire, you know, our, our play, mm. uh, the heart of rock and roll, it just got a theater on Broadway, the James Earl Jones theater. And that's going to start in April in New York city. So that's very exciting for us. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be really neat. Um, Johnny and I are going to be working on some of a light. We're going to re-release the first album. We're going to remix it and re-release the first album. And we're going to work on that a little bit. Um, we have some live stuff that has, we've not released that we're going to put out. Um, so we have irons in the fire. It's, you know, it's not done yet. So far as playing live, I don't believe that will happen. You, I, that was Huey I was talking to when you we first got on. He oh, had okay. just called me. Wow. Yeah, and I'm supposed to call him back here. Mm -hmm. real soon. But uh, he, I was talking to him a couple of days ago. And he says his hearing is getting worse. Mm. So I, I don't see a recovery and I don't see us playing live again. Mm. Unfortunately, it's really sad. I can't imagine what it's like for him. I feel horrible for him. He can't listen to music of any kind. He can't just go put on a record or put on his radio in his car and lit. He can't listen to music. And I just can't imagine uh, something like that. So horrible happening to a musician, you know, so yeah. Unfortunately, I, you know, I think the band is done live, but like I say, we have other things happening and we'll, yeah. con we'll continue the legacy. Awesome. Yeah. It, uh, I, I, I totally agree with you. Like I, yeah, I, I, like I would give up movies, I would give up video games, but I would not want to give up music. That's like the one thing I'd want to, to I, keep. So um, it, just before uh, we move into the next part of the show, I uh, you were talking about live recordings. Um, it just made me uh, remember, because on the We Are The World album, you guys uh, got a song 
uh, on that. And it was a live version of Trouble in Paradise from your right. first album. Uh, is that uh, is that a show that is potentially in the works to, to be no, released? Not that one. That was the show we did at the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco. And um, it was a live, it was a video that was released in Japan called all the way live. And we actually won a Grammy for that performance. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, uh, that was from that show. I don't know. I don't know. I suppose we could go back and look at it, but, um, it's already been released. Okay. Yeah. Nice. This episode of guess that record is brought to you by Marvel marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is brought to you by GuitarWorks. One of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years, GuitarWorks carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands in music, including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. Guitar Works, your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is also brought to you by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada. Buy, sell, and trade tapes, CDs, and vinyl. Located in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood on 9th Avenue Southeast, visit them in person or follow them on Instagram at Recordland Calgary. Awesome. Well, uh, we are now entering the guessing section of this podcast for which the show gets its name. So I'll go over the rules for you, Bill, and any other new listeners we may have. In this bag is a record that I pulled from my uh, my personal collection. Uh, I'll give you three clues about this album, and then we just play a game of 20 questions to determine uh, its identity. And don't worry if you feel stuck, because I'll give you hints at uh, any point. So, Bill Gibson, are you ready to guess that record? Let's go. All right. So here are your three clues. This album was released in the 1980s. It consists of songs that had been recorded for previous albums before it. And lastly, you've worked with people who worked on this album. Question one. So now I get to ask you questions, huh? That's right. Yeah. Is it um is it an American band? It's not an American band. Question two. Not a, is it a band? It is a band. <laughs> Question three. Um, is it a British band? It is a British band. Question four. Is it uh, my aim is true? It's not. No. Question five. Is it um, have anything to do with Stiff Records? Uh, no. Question six. Okay, and we and I've worked with with somebody that was associated you've, with this. Right? You've worked with two people that were associated on this album. 
Are they musicians? They're uh, they're behind the desk. I'll say that. Oh, okay. Question seven. Wow. So Mutt's got to be one of them. Uh, no, actually. Oh. Oh goodness. Question eight. British band. The engineers or producers I've worked with before. Mm-hmm. I can give you another hint if you'd like there. Give me a hint, yeah. All right. Um, you don't have to, to think really outside of the box with this because they are a massive band. Def Leppard? Not Def Leppard. Question nine. Wow, you got me stumped. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll try and I'll think of another hint here. Um, let's see. Uh, this may help you get it along here. Uh, this band just released a new album. Not the Stones. It is the Stones. <laughs> oh, it is the Stones. And who have I worked with with that that engineered or produced the Stones? We've we've already talked about them on in this interview we have mm-hmm. wow <laughs> who the heck have i worked with who engineered or produced the stones well if uh if you're cool i can just show you the record now <laughs> since you <laughs> you got the stones so uh, yeah it uh it was tattoo you was the album and oh. so this album was mixed by Bob Clearmountain. Oh, and was right. mastered by Bob Luke, Bob Ludwig, who did oh, uh, yeah, a he... bunch of uh, of your albums as well. Sure. So, um, yeah, it uh, that that was part of the reason why I I picked the album when I was trying to because of course I, I found out uh, some of your favorite artists and the Stones were on that list and yeah. um uh, yeah when I was looking through you know which album. And then I saw it mixed by Bob Clearmountain and mastered by Bob Ludwig. I was like, ah, that would be a good one. It, it hey, is when you, when you said they worked with with the Stones behind the desk. I'm picturing them in the studio with the Stones, right? Right. Bob was mixed that album in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Bob Ludwig mastered it in Los Angeles. So yeah, <laughs> that 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 threw me off. All good. Um, yeah, but you're uh, right. You're 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 absolutely right. Yeah. It's um it is interesting though with uh like how many albums especially like in the 80s where you know you look at the back of the album and it's mixed by Bob Clearmountain mastered by Bob Ludwig it's uh uh yeah they they definitely have a lot of credits under their name for sure uh, yeah bob was bob's the man and he mixed weather for us as well mm. uh, and um he's just great matter of fact he we've just released atmos dolby atmos mixes of sports and four and um, Bob remixed those for us as well in Atmos. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, before we get into the discussion about Tattoo U, I'll provide some facts for anyone not familiar with it. Uh, Tattoo U is the 16th British and 18th American album by the Rolling Stones. It was released on August 24th, 1981. And the album largely consists of songs recorded during the 1970s. Uh, it contains one of the band's most well-known songs, Start Me Up, which hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100. And to date, it's the last Rolling Stones album to hit number one on the charts, which ended a string of eight consecutive 
number one albums for the band. Um, now, uh, looking at, you know, with, uh, with uh, your history and context with this album, uh, this album came out between the first uh, Huey Lewis in the News album and picture this. So uh, do you remember your reaction when the record came out? Yeah, I loved Start Me Up. Mm-hmm. I thought that was awesome. What what are some of the other songs on that? Right? Was this yeah. does that? Oh, I'm thinking of Some Girls. I th- I thought Some Girls was well. My two favorite Stones album of all time are Let It Bleed and Some Girls. Mm. Those are my two favorites. Yeah, Some and, uh, Some Girls is a favorite of mine as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, of course I, I love Beggar's Banquet, but there was something about let it bleed that uh, that just knocked me out mm-hmm. yeah uh, and you know i don't know we weren't listening i i saw the stones here in san francisco might have been 1981 oh no it was the steel wheels one was steel wheels out that Eight, was 89 i think 89 yeah oh wow then yeah that was much later <laughs> much later yeah, I saw um, I saw him several times at several different venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, from large to small. To answer uh, to answer your question here, uh, some of the other songs on uh, "Tattoo You" besides "Start Me Up," you've got uh, "Hang Fire," uh, yeah. "Worried About You," "Waiting on a Friend." All right. Um, yeah. So it's it's. Uh, but the interesting thing is that yeah. So when they were making this album. Um, uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger's were they were sort of in a feud during that period so it was hard to get everyone into the studio and but they needed a new album out so they just kind of sent people to go find songs that they had started and not finished so uh, a lot of the album was recorded in the 70s but it doesn't I, I feel like even though you know it's technically an 80s album I feel like it it fits for for the time that it was released in they they did a good job of making everything sound fresh and current i guess yeah i agree and it was it was kind of a departure for them i think uh, aside from songs like start me up that was mm. that was pure rolling stones you know uh, pure keith richards that one yeah um, but um like waiting on a friend when when wayne shorter on that song uh what does he play? he play uh, he plays soprano sax on it i believe yeah there is a sax Wayne Short, who played with weather report you know one mm-hmm. of the jazz monster and when i saw that i thought what wayne what's wayne shorter doing on a rolling stones album <laughs> yeah it's uh that is a funny song i i do really like waiting on a friend but it's a funny song because uh, of course when you look at it in the context of what was going on when they were making that album and how mick and keith weren't very happy with each other it's uh, the lyrics are a little ironic when you look at it that way but uh it, it's good that, song. you know just just that happens to every band and mm-hmm. you're, you're going to be doing projects and stuff and a couple of the guys in the band aren't going to be getting along yep trust me yeah, <laughs> definitely and then, you know that happened to us too we went through those those times as well and you know there are plenty of arguments and you know not seeing eye to eye but eventually you get through it yeah and um, the album has an interesting structure because it's like um, the first like the first side of the album is all kind of like, you know, guitar heavy rock and roll songs. And then the second side is like ballads and, you know, sort of softer tracks. And 
I always find it interesting when bands do stuff like that. You know, it may it may not be a full on concept album, but it's got a thematic element by, uh, you know, by grouping the songs together like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Uh, now, I'm curious about this. Would I be correct in saying that a big reason you're a Stones fan is because of Charlie Watts? No. Oh, no. <laughs> um I I'll probably catch hell for this, but I never fancied him as a any great drummer. I mean, he was he was he was um, adequate and perfect for the Stones, perfect for the Stones. Mm-hmm. So there's something in there that I, I suppose that makes him great, you know. But he's no great shakes, in my opinion, you know. Um, nicest guy in the world i a, a good friend of mine w- was very close with with charlie i never got a chance to meet him unfortunately i know we would have gotten along um but uh yeah i just um i i, I was more into keith richards than i was <laughs> charlie watts that's a, that's really interesting because i i mean i do feel like i i see a lot of drummers like oh he you know he was a huge influence on me and and that sort of thing you know guys back then guys that were influenced on me were guys like mitch mitchell jimmy Mm. hendrix's drummer yeah he was he was a major influence on me and um um and there was a guy here in marin county who played with a band called the sons of champlin who coincidentally i'm playing with now Ah. is um um Bill Bowen, who was a major influence, probably because he lived down the hill from me and I could go sit in outside his room and listen to him practice. Right. And he kind of took me under his wing in the high school marching band and taught me some stuff, you know, but but he, he was a major influence. But guys like Mitch Mitchell, who who I thought played circles around guys like Charlie Watts. Mm, so. Yeah, no, Mitch Mitchell is... Uh... Uh, definitely he's, he's so he, I've always found him to be underrated and it's probably because he was next to Jimi Hendrix, you know, but yeah, he did, he did some crazy stuff for sure. It's, um, but it is, um, I I do feel like there is kind of like, you know, especially with the drummers of your generation who kind of, uh, you know, got their start in like the late seventies, early eighties, um, and were sort of influenced by the guys of the sixties. Cause it's like, it does sort of feel like there are camps like the guys who, you know, were influenced by Charlie Watts and Ringo Starr, who, who you know, maybe weren't as uh, they were more about just holding the backbeat and not being flashy. And then you've got the guys who liked Keith Moon and John Bonham, who, you know, would uh, do all the crazy stuff. So, yeah, yeah, both of whom were influences on me as well, mm-hmm. both Keith and John Bonham. And I was fortunate enough to see them both several times. Nice. And so, you know, they, they were in, they were influenced. The whole British invasion pretty much was an influence on me. Ringo was huge. Um, um, who else? Guys like um, uh, Ginger Baker, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, Jim Capaldi from Traffic. Um, yeah, the whole British invasion was super influential on me. Definitely, yeah. And, and just to, to finish off here, of course, you, you mentioned you didn't meet Charlie, but have you met anyone else from the Rolling Stones? No. <laughs> no. no. Nobody else. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you um, go. 
It is. Uh, I, I was also. I forgot to mention this, but uh, the Stones uh, are quite a timely band for us to talk about because, uh, as I mentioned in the hints, they just released a brand new album, and uh, you know it's cool. It, and also um, this week, the Beatles released a new song, so it's kind of uh, it's cool to see uh, you know these these uh, bands that have been around for a long time still at it and and uh, putting stuff out there. Yeah, the 60 years for the Stones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unbelievable to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, perfect. Well, we have reached the end of another episode of Guess That Record. I want to thank Bill Gibson for taking the time to appear on the show today. Uh, such an honor to speak with you. I've heard your drumming for years and years. I, of course, got to see you live as well. And uh, as someone who's uh you know working my way into the industry it means a lot to get to like when i get to speak with people who have you know played on songs and albums that were just massive hits so uh, i'm very thankful for the the time uh you took to take to be on the podcast today i appreciate it jackson thanks for having me and i'm really disappointed i didn't guess that record but for sure i was going to guess that record uh all good it's not a competition it's just it's a way for us to uh a, a, a different way for us to just have a discussion about an album. So sure. yeah. Cool. And thanks to you, the listeners for tuning in. The podcast is nothing without you guys. So the more you keep listening, the more we'll be able to put out great episodes. Make sure to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening and tell your friends to check us out. We also have a YouTube channel. So if you've been with us on the audio side of things, but want to see the faces behind these conversations, just search for Guess That Record on YouTube and it'll be at the top of the results. You can also follow us on Instagram at Guess That Record. Remember to keep rocking and we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record.